Hello, I'm Eddie French, and you might recognise me from such icy news noises as... <coughs> Daddy! And who could forget... <coughs> well, the good news is, is that I now have my own podcast. It's called Pick Scraped, and it is a fortnightly sketch show uh, made entirely by me. So if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd like, go to wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it. Thank you. Pick Scraped. You're listening to IC News, the only network bringing you the stories from across the multiverse. Boris Johnson says the sort of deception used by the BBC's Martin Bashir to get an interview with Princess Diana back in 1995 must never happen again. Unless, of course, it's a deception about NHS funding that narrowly swings a referendum result in his favour. Israel and Palestinian militants both claim victory after a ceasefire ends 11 days of violence in the region, with Hamas claiming tis but a scratch, and next time they'll bite Israel's legs off. The UK makes a free trade offer to Australia. Despite the objections of British farmers who claim they cannot compete with Australian agriculture's economies of scale, never fear, British farmers. In the long run, the environmental impact of shipping all that meat thousands of miles to the UK will probably cause enough wildfires to burn the whole of Australia to the ground. Maybe that's what Michael Gove means about the benefits of Brexit being felt in 50 years or so. And finally, Oxford University announces that it will not remove a controversial statue of imperialist Cecil Rhodes after all, proving that it's just as hard to get him off a plinth as it is to get him out of Zimbabwe. Hello and welcome. I'm Sam Gore, and you're listening to another episode of IC News. We've got the hottest stories from right here on Earth Prime and from all across the multiverse. But if you think I'm committing hours of airtime to the shady antics of one BBC presenter 25 years ago, then certain members of staff here at the network have another thing coming. There are far more important things to talk about, like whether or not the latest coronavirus variant poses a threat to the planned easing of lockdowns in Britain in a few weeks. Funnily enough, I'm not enormously surprised that unbearably smarmy shithouse Martin Bashir has turned out to be an underhanded unbearably smarmy shithouse. And there might be a small question of personal bias creeping in here, but some of us are meant to be getting married in July and need to pay the vendors soon, and would quite like to know if they are in fact just going to be fucking their money into a giant hole in the ground. Shit, I bet that's him. Sam! Sam! Let me in, goddammit! You know why I'm here! People's princess betrayed, destroyed by those monsters at the BBC. You must let me in. Nobody fucking move. I don't care that it's a fire exit. I've locked and bolted it. He is not getting in. I am not losing an entire broadcast to half an hour of his bullshit again. I'm the royal correspondent, Sam. This is the scandal of the century, and you're not even on air. The lights are off, the blinds are drawn. This is negligence of the most grotesque order. This is Diana we're talking about. Shut up, everyone. Nobody make a fucking sound. Oh, 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 oh,
fates conspire to censor me. Hello? Nicholas, my dear boy, my darling Witchel, I know. I know! The horror. Where are you? No, 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 you stay there. I'll come to you. Don't hurt yourself when she pulls. We'll get through this together. Is he gone? Oh, thank fuck. Just to be sure, though, let's stay on silent running for a bit and just play one of the pre-recorded packages, okay? This week, our youth correspondent David Stanier has been looking at global tax reform. Hi everyone, I'm David Stanier, the network's former work experience boy, and now highly professional full-time journalist. Thank you in advance for your congratulations, I promise to make you proud. And on top of that, I'm a man. Grr, man. With absolutely no deep-seated psychological issues. I've got 99 problems, but a borderline personality disorder that causes me to disassociate into a state of childlike enthusiasm ain't one. That would be bonkers, wouldn't it? A man could do anything in that sort of state. Like eat too much candy, or ride a horse around town like a cowboy, butt naked. Yeehaw, cheeky. Here comes the cavalry. Or, and I'm just spitballing here, continue waging his dead revolutionary father's bloody one-man war against the rich in a desperate attempt to win the approval of his ghost. You hear me, authorities? There's no psychological issues. Zip. Nada. Zilch. None. Written in big letters in bubble writing. Uh, can you count the number of issues I've got on one hand? Yes. Even if you've lost all your fingers. So never fear, Stumpy Jim. You can still be able to count all of my psychological problems. Because I've got none. I'm just your average, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps youth correspondent. I was born in the bullpen, son. I eat the facts. Bleed ink. And shit news. Whoops. Oh, sorry, kids. That's a curse word. And back at the compound, father would have tanned my hide for such thoughtless language. And then made me run the course again. But this time with the dogs off their chains. And then I'd have to spend two hours buried neck deep in the woods with only the moon for company. You'll earn your man's tongue out there, boy, he'd say. And a real man shows the world his anger with his actions, not his words. <laughs> but listen to me, prittle prattle on. I've digressed. And now all your cress is pink. Enjoy your party sandwich, kids. Egg and pink cress. <laughs> Wacky. Just kidding. I've not dyed any cress. But I've definitely digressed. Big time. Cover me in chocolate and dunk me in tea because I'm a digressive biscuit. I've digressed. Digressed means to deviate or to go off on a tangent. Just like the way the world has digressed from the traditional bonds of the moral social order. We've drifted away from community and cooperation towards unfettered globalism and the outright greed of corporate plutocracy. Whoa-oh. That doesn't sound good, does it? But what can we do about it? I'm here today to talk to you about taxes and the efforts currently being made to reform the way they're collected all over the globe. The taxman is a bit like the tooth fairy. For a bit of fun, think of a man in a bowler hat wearing a tutu. You give him something, like a tooth, or a percentage of your income, and you get something back in return, like a shiny 50p, or a functioning society. Well, the grown-up world has gone all topsy-turvy in the last few decades. The taxman tries his best, but he just can't keep up anymore. 
enormous tech monopolies and sprawling multinationals generating huge profits all over the world now get their 50ps out of all sorts of countries. But because they don't have a physical pillow in all of them, they're not giving any of their teeth away in return. And without those teeth, the taxman can't build nice things, like shiny enamel roads, or tartar bridges, or horrifying molar hospitals. Are you following me so far? Of course you are. You're a bright bunch of kids. Which is why you understand that the OECD's proposal to establish a new global minimum corporation tax rate is potentially one of the most significant reforms that the international system of taxation has seen in decades. A minimum global rate, coupled with new regulations allowing countries to tax operations making profits in their jurisdiction, even when they have no physical presence there, could effectively eliminate tax havens. Will it work? And will it actually happen? Probably not, kids. And for all sorts of reasons, from politics to nationalism to good old-fashioned corporate greed. But if we don't do something soon and start to rein in the footloose practices of enormous businesses that shuffle their operations and tax affairs around the globe in order to avoid paying their fair share, we're in for trouble. Exchequers lose hundreds of billions of pounds in tax revenue every year to such practices. And we're not too far off scary realities like the one I'm visiting today. Sam finally let me have a go of travelling the multiverse. I was sick four times. This is Earth Uniform Foxtrot Deepwater Verizon 68. Here, offshore really means offshore. Enormous multinationals and tech conglomerates in this reality have bought up disused oil rigs, where they've set up business centres out of reach of the taxman of any of the countries where they generate their profits. It's an idea that's been floated back on Earth Prime, and I don't know about you, but I don't think we should let it spread. Which is where my snazzy saboteur training comes in. There might not be a huge amount of built-up gas and oil left in this baby, but I'm willing to bet there's enough pressure left behind the blowout preventer to send a statement. So let's sing our goodbye song together, kids. <clears throat> Use the dark web, download blueprints, hide IPs, no one sees, concentrate the gases, rebuild from the ashes, kill the rich, kill the rich. And here we go. Whoa, wow, spicy. There we have it, kids. I'm David Stanier, and I better get out of here while I still can. Reporting for IC News. Right, I haven't heard anything for a while, so I think we're probably clear to get back to our main story of the week, which is, of course, the latest developments in the pandemic. Joining us in the studio today to discuss the Indian variant and the potential impact it could have on easing the lockdown measures further in June, it's Tom King. Hi Sam, thanks for having me. And can I just say, it brings me great pleasure to come on the show today and announce the death of all hope. There's simply no need for optimism or positivity anymore. We're all doomed, and we may as well just resign ourselves to years of this unending misery right now. I'm not sure that quite chimes with the general picture of the pandemic, Tom. This new variant is an unwelcome curveball, admittedly, but I don't think things are quite as dire as all that. Variant? Oh, sorry. I was just talking about the inevitability of another full generation of Tory rule. Do you like that? I bought it with me. I thought it might serve to emphasise the sick burns I plan on dropping. Tom, stop it. You've got to be quiet. 
Why? Hello? I thought I heard something. Sam, I swear if you are broadcasting in there and you're not covering this, my indignation will be positively immeasurable. Who the fuck's that? It's Sebastian. You know, the royal correspondent. Oh, God, the chinless one. Yeah, that's him. He thinks we should be devoting the entire episode to this Martin Bashir Princess Diana story, and I'm not having it. What? A 25-year-old scandal? Exactly. It might be big news for the BBC, but it's not like it was the worst thing the press ever did to Diana. It's not even the worst thing a BBC presenter's ever done. You disappoint me, Sam. I thought I could rely on you to honour our beloved monarchy, and this is how you treat them? For shame. I'm going to the offices of the Daily Express. They'll know how to turn this scandal into an orgy of grovelling bootlickery. Thank God, I think he's actually gone this time. Let's try and get back on track, shall we? Fair enough. Right, it's been another week of the government scrambling to defend itself, Sam. This time against criticism of its delay in putting India on the red list. We're not importing much right now, but we are still bringing in fun new ways to fuck ourselves over. And how has the government responded to that criticism exactly? Oh, by wheeling out Matt Hancock again, Sam. Traditionally never a sign that things are going well. He's the never-quite-dry tenor lady of conservative scorn-mopping, a man who's somehow capable of absorbing ten times more ridicule than any other human alive. Hancock is a bullet sponge, a human buffer, and put simply, his big justification for the delay this week was little more than a shameless and massive fucking lie. That's a serious accusation, Don. It is, and it's borne out by the government's own figures. Hancock claimed in Parliament this week that when the decision was made to put Pakistan and Bangladesh on the red list, passengers from those countries were testing positive at three times the rate of travellers from India. That's just not true, and the data proves it. In fact, it shows that Pakistan was only slightly higher, and Bangladesh actually had a lower percentage of passengers testing positive than India. The delay was an unforgivable mistake, and Hancock's justification for it is complete bollocks. And what about the vaccine uptake? What, you mean the suggestion that it's people swerving the jabs that are to blame for the new hospitalisations? Well, that was Lord Lilly's suggestion this week, yeah. He claimed that selfish vaccine sceptics could see the UK locked down forever. Of course he did, because blaming the clueless unwashed rather than the obvious mistakes the government have made is just Tory 101 at this point. Unfortunately for him, that excuse is bollocks too. The UK's actually got a remarkably low level of vaccine scepticism, and if the current rate of uptake continues like it's predicted to, it's just a matter of time before we hit the threshold needed for some form of herd immunity. That's good news, isn't it? Well, it would be, but a new, potentially more infectious variant ripping through the unvaccinated population eats up that time. There are always going to be some vulnerable people who can't have the vaccine for one genuine medical reason or another. And without herd immunity preventing the general spread of the disease, they will always be facing the risk of exposure and serious illness. And then there's the fact that a needless petri dish of circulating disease will throw up even more variants, any one of which could prove to be vaccine-resistant. 
And we still have no central system of quarantine. Terrible statutory sick pay, meaning it's difficult for those struggling financially to self-isolate, and a track-and-trace system that glitches harder than fucking Skynet. We've paid £37 billion for an app that crashes more often than Ant McPartlin, and it's left local healthcare services hit by this variant scrambling to play catch-up. None of this sounds particularly great for the prospect of further unlocking in June, Tom. Or maybe not, but it is a question that's up in the air. The government are clearly gambling that the push to come out of lockdown should be based on deaths, hospitalisations and pressure on the NHS, rather than a simple rise in the number of cases. With most of our vulnerable population now vaccinated, that may well be the prudent approach. But the simple fact is that it's the government failure that's cost us the extra time we could have had to get ahead of this variant. We imported loads of it when we didn't need to, and we've never, not once, properly secured the borders against cases coming in. If Matt Hancock's excuses are anything to go by, we've got two options here. Our government either doesn't understand its own clear and obvious data, or it's just perfectly comfortable sending out its most embarrassing failure to lie through his teeth in Parliament these days. Neither of those thoughts are particularly encouraging. We're facing incompetence or willful negligence, or any variety of a fun combination of the two, and it's those people making the decisions about the future of lockdown for us. Tom King, thanks. You're welcome. Really? <laughs> what? I just like getting my money's worth. <sighs> well, the government's handling of border restrictions for passengers arriving from India is just one of many issues that Boris Johnson has been called up on in Parliament. But with the Conservatives enjoying an 80-seat majority and a set of English local election results that seem to indicate that very little of Labour's criticisms are cutting through to the wider public, what exactly can the opposition actually do about Conservative policy failures? And what's the future of a once-again bruised and uncertain Labour Party under the leadership of Keir Starmer? Here's passionate centrist Joanna Gordon to explore those very important questions. Thanks, Sam. It's been an exciting week for enthusiastic Keir Starmer supporters like me. Now that Parliament's back in session, it's time for a whole new season of Prime Minister's Questions and we're gearing up for another set of absolute corkers. Just the thought of more flat, monotone, clinical but ultimately uninspiring criticism of Boris Johnson has got me giddier than Peter Mandelson in a branding meeting. (laughs) The anticipation reminds me of that time I had a sip of Red Bull at university and had a massive panic attack. I had to lie down in a dark room and listen to Enya for two days just to shake the crawling terror that I was somehow hurtling towards my own death. (laughs) I just can't take this level of excitement. I'm a centrist, Keir. Keep it in the middle of the road, will you? It's been a couple of weeks since the elections, and off the back of a resounding mixed bag, it's fair to say that Labour are steaming ahead with continuing to exist. Yes, the general picture of the results in England left a little to be desired, but there were lots of factors in play that Starmer's critics won't acknowledge. This was a set of results that favoured the incumbents. We saw that in Wales and Scotland too. You've also got to bear in mind that the Tories benefited from the bounce of a successful vaccine rollout. On top of that, the EU's behaviour over the Oxford jab has made them look petty and vindictive. Well, that was enough to make Brexit feel like it was worth it to a lot of Leave voters. Leave voters who might have otherwise been discouraged from voting Tory by chaos at the ports and the damage that Brexit has so far caused the economy. Also, it was cold that day and Starmer hadn't really warmed up. And he'd had a big lunch that wasn't really sitting right. 
And the gains Labour made only looked small because they were so far away. And the dog ate his policies, and he overslept, and it was a full moon, and the weather was bad, and his electoral coalition is a grower, not a shower, and is shy, and you can't really compete with Netflix these days anyway. And Starmer does have a girlfriend, actually, but she goes to a different school, and you don't know her, so why don't you just shut up and drop it already, yeah? Because what are you, a fucking knock? What's really key right now isn't what's just happened all the way back in the ancient past. Apart from Jeremy Corbyn, of course, who is the other 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 reason why Starmer's performance in England wasn't brilliant. But what matters is how Labour move on from these results and the direction the party takes moving forwards. Personally, I don't think Keir Starmer needs to change a thing. He is beautiful, a cautious strategist, straddling the fence like some sort of glorious... Um, Squirrel. He can slowly replace my traditionally red population with an uninspiring shade of grey at any time. (sighs) But there are other people in the party who disagree. The Labour left wants Starmer to reconfirm his commitment to the principles and policies of the 2017 manifesto. In contrast, the right desperately want him to reconnect with the party's working class base by countering the culture war and Labour's perceived metropolitan wokeness head on. What that actually means, they're never really all that clear on. Presumably, Tony Blair wants to see Angela Rayner bludgeoning pro-EU Black Lives Matter supporters to death with a bust of Winston Churchill in the middle of Hartlepool. And then there's Andy Burnham, the so-called king in the north, who thought he'd put his two pennies worth in this week, like he's just done well or something. He's called for a Labour Party that puts English devolution at the heart of its new strategy. With a new, local, bottom-up way of doing politics, Burnham wants to see power taken out of Westminster and handed back to the communities. He thinks a devolved approach could drive the party's hopes of reconnecting with traditional Labour voters and counter the vagueness of the Conservatives' levelling up agenda. Or at least, that's what he says. But frankly, what does a man who's just won a massive majority in the north of England know about connecting with traditional Labour voters? I mean, please. The biggest challenge Sir Keir Starmer faces now is making the Labour Party narrative appear less elitist, London-centric and metropolitan. What does a piddly little local mayor in a backwater like Manchester realistically have to offer on that front? Hmm? It's clearly a problem that can only be fixed by a much less popular night of the realm in Westminster. I'm Joanna Gordon, and I just can't wait to hear what Keir Starmer comes up with, reporting for IC News. No, I'm serious. I literally can't wait anymore. Something, anything, just a scrap of coherent national strategy would be nice. Hello? Hello? Joanna Gordon there, once again howling enthusiastically into the labour void. That's it for today, everyone. We've successfully delivered an actual news show instead of devoting an entire broadcast to weaponising an ancient scandal against the nation's public service broadcaster. And no, that's not a defence of them, so fucking calm down in the comments section, will you? We'll be back again the same time next week, but until then, we leave you now with the headlines you may have missed. A nurse who cared for Boris Johnson when he was sick with COVID-19 has resigned over the government's lack of respect for the profession. She will now presumably go to work in the private sector, meaning, ironically, that she's actually ended up doing exactly what the government wanted her to do anyway. 
Indoor dining and live entertainment returns to England as the country is hit with a fresh epidemic of pathologically insecure stand-up comedians all bitching in the green room that they thought of that totally original lockdown joke first. The UK is to see the world's first clinical trials for the efficacy of a third Covid jab ahead of its plans to potentially offer booster shots in the autumn, as an entire country looks at Matt Hancock and thinks to itself, God, I'm sick of these pricks. And finally, Heathrow is to open Terminal 3 for the exclusive use of passengers arriving from red list countries. Wow, what the hell? Aha, I knew it! What fresh fuckery is this? Now, Sebastian, calm down. I I can explain. Is that the music? Are you finishing? How dare you? How fucking dare you? What about Diana? Sod this. You've been listening to IC News, and I'm getting out of here. Thank you, and goodbye. Get back here, you treacherous little maggot. You're worse than Bashir. She was our queen of fucking hearts. me, Danny Sutcliffe. I'm here today with the right bargain for you. And no, it's not just the mystery me I've got in the back of my van. Although that is also primo stuff, so meet me behind odd bins and flash your full beams if you're interested. If you haven't joined our Patreon yet, we've got a special offer for you. Sign up now as one of our early bird supporters and you can get access to all of our exclusive content for just £2 a month. If you want bonus podcast sketches, compilation episodes and ICU stories, this is the cheapest you're ever going to get them. You've got to be quick though, this deal is limited to the first 500 patrons and they'll get snapped up quick. It's the best way to show your support for the show and you'll be helping us to grow moving forwards. As always, thank you for all of your support and we hope you enjoy the show. And no, it's not badger meat. And if Brian May tries to tell you otherwise, he's a fucking liar.